0: Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Amanda Lang, for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll aim to cover two topics. First, this week's federal cabinet shuffle and what it might tell us about the direction of economic policy and the issues that may animate the next election whenever it comes. And second, new demands from industry groups that Ottawa grant small and medium-sized businesses an extension on the repayment of loans provided during the pandemic and whether the government ought to comply. Amanda, we have a busy show. Thanks, as always, for joining us.
2: Great to be with you.
1: Let's start with the cabinet shuffle. The government positioned the significant changes to his cabinet, as many as 30 moves, as a refocus on the economy. Yet a lot of key economic ministers, most notably Finance Minister Chrystia Friedland, didn't move. What do you think is behind such a big shuffle? And do you think it signals anything about the government's policy direction?
2: I think, I mean, I would make two observations. And one is uh, that we can maybe read less into these kinds of shuffles than we might have in the past. Um, And, you know. We could, we could talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I do think that leaving some of those core, uh, economic ministers, especially Christopher Freeland, I think a move for a uh, Freeland, we would have, that would be the only subject across the land today, uh, what that signified and, uh, what it suggested about, um, her tenure or what was happening next. Uh, uh some of the ministers, as people will be aware, have been in problematic files or files that have had problems, uh, and have in, been on the hot seat. So to remove them, uh, maybe looks like, I don't know. Does it look like punishment for that minister? Mismanagement? Does it just look like they want to change the the storyline a little? I I will tell you one thing I was interested in. I was doing a bit of research because it does seem to me that cabinets only get bigger. uh, And you wonder, do we need this many? Um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau shuffled his cabinet in 1972 after losing, of course, and his government coming back as a minority Uh, And it was a a shuffle to a 30-person cabinet. So actually, it was pretty big even in 1972. The cost of living was the major issue of that day. Uh, And eight ministers were out. uh, And there were 18 changes to that cabinet. So uh, I must say, it it does happen. Maybe only Trudeau's do it. That's where my research on this stopped. But I found it fascinating that the last time that inflation was sort of the big issue, there was also a big, you know, we're going to move the, the shells around a lot and see if you're if you're still paying attention. In that case, they did leave a few key ministers in place, um, including my dad, I will note. Uh, so, there, you know, there there is a bit of similarity. I may I don't know whether that anybody inside whether this echoed it on purpose or not.
1: Oh, what a fascinating analogy. In that election campaign that you referred to, Amanda, the slogan was the land is strong. And of course, that didn't quite connect with people and how they felt about their own circumstances. And there's something similar happening now too, right? The shuffles happened the same week as a pretty devastating abacus poll that shows the liberal parties about 10 percentage points below the conservatives and a Globe and Mail editorial that documented various ways in which the government's economic record lags its predecessors. Assuming the liberal NDP parliamentary agreement holds, We're less than two years from the next election. What can the government do policy-wise, Amanda, to reverse some of these trends?
2: It's an interesting question because, of course, as you know, as well as anybody, I I think we can agree that uh, how people are doing personally um, fiscally is is one of the driving issues so the econ- it's the economy stupid of course is the kind of the the old uh, expression uh, and it's it's very true that when people feel as though their personal situation is deteriorating they think they're that perhaps somebody else is to blame uh, and in this case uh, it may be slightly unfairly cast in the sense that there have been some massive global issues that have affected our economy uh, and it probably wouldn't have mattered much um, who is in charge and you know P.S., yes, when that pandemic came, whether you agree with what happened or not, this was a government that responded with massive support uh, for citizens. And we will all recall that in the wake of that sentiment about the government was very strong. People loved that, that the government was was there for them. Now we're grappling with stuff that's a little bit harder for the government to counter globally, uh, bred inflation. Uh, an employment scene that's still strong, but of course we keep being warned and sentiment is a a lot more about the headlines than uh, reality in some cases. We keep being warned that the labor market uh, not only will get softer, but has to get softer. We have to see job losses or there won't be success on inflation. And so you could see why people would feel unsettled by that, even if their own situation is okay. Um, And again, and things like my house was notionally worth 40% more two years ago than it is today, even if it doesn't matter, even if I'm not gonna sell it, I might be mad about that. So I do wonder whether, um, you know, I guess I would turn the question back to you as somebody who's kind of been on the other side of this equation there when there's when there's a limit to what the government can do. um, How do you message that You know, when it really is beyond your control? That's not really something you can say, right, because you're supposed to be leading.
1: Yeah, that's right. There's also a challenge that few governments have been able to overcome, which is that the challenge of appearing fresh and new. And future oriented after being in government for a long period of time a government is as i said on the hub roundtable podcast last friday all-consuming it's transactional it's a a kind of day-to-day grind and of course that has been even more so the case for this government when you think about its trajectory it starts with donald trump becoming the president and then just as that seems to be stabilizing we're hit by a -a once-in-a-century pandemic and now an inflation crisis And, and of course all of the other chinks in the armor that come about after being in office for so long. And so I think one of the challenges that it faces is simply finding a new way to breathe life into the government's agenda, introduce energy, and so on. And I think that's in large part what yesterday's cabinet shuffle was all about. I I would just say in parentheses, Amanda, I can't think of too many instances where Canadian governments, incumbent governments have, when that perception starts to take shape within the Canadian public have been able to overcome it. The two exceptions that I can think of in recent years are when Dalton McGuinty is replaced by Kathleen Wynne as the Ontario Liberal Party leader and, and is able to eke out one more election win. And in British Columbia, where similarly, Christy Clark replaced Gordon Campbell and the BC Liberals, won one more election before ultimately turning over the reins of power. The leader on the top of this government, of course, hasn't changed. And so this kind of underlying challenge of how does the government stay fresh, Stay future oriented, I think is going to be one of the biggest challenges government faces as we move towards the 2025 election campaign. And in that vein, I want to take up a particular issue, and and that is the one of housing you mentioned earlier. There's been a lot of attention paid to the appointment of Sean Frazier to the housing file in light of growing agitation, particularly among younger Canadians about housing prices. What do you make of Frazier's appointment? And what, if anything, do you think we might see in terms of new policy? from the government on housing?
2: I mean, so, such an interesting question. Um, I I, liked the, um, I don't know, symmetry of the immigration minister being shuffled to housing, because of course, um, that is the hot potato one to the other, right? So immigration is the, the fuel of um, g- new problems. And we just got a new analysis this week uh, from TD on this of just how much it will increase um, the shortage that we already have in housing. So yeah, you caused the this problem now you get to solve it. Um, I, I like that a lot, actually. Um, I I think people find him very credible, uh, you know, and I think um, it's it's that that's a sign of seriousness on the file, not that Putin was was unserious or doing a bad job. I will say uh, I don't think that a the federal government doesn't own this file, so the federal government can do a limited amount on it, and they're they've you know earmarked a lot of money to try to do things, um, but uh, b we have a problem in this country that goes beyond, of course, identifying the issue and then uh, mobilizing to solve the issue. And the the gap is too many players don't want the issue solved. It's, I mean, if we, we need to be blunt about that, too many players in government and outside of government, like the housing market, exactly the way it is, which is to say when there is limited supply of that quantity, the value stays high and we are all beneficiaries of that. And by the way, I mean, we've talked about this, but the number of MPs, sitting MPs who are themselves owner of investment property housing is shockingly high. Should they not be? I'm not suggesting you know that, but it is when we're talking about making policy. If we get housing right, the value of your home, my home, your neighbor's home should go down. It should go down. That's what affordability is. There's no other way to put, to put it. And who's going to campaign on that? Exactly nobody. So- the long way of saying, uh, I- until we actually become galvanized by there's enough people, a critical mass of people, of voters who don't have access to the housing they need, uh, the rest of us are going to keep this, the financialization of housing, exactly how it is, and it's in our favor.
0: Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of the Hub. I wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping, six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They wanna achieve net zero by 2050. And we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well. With that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming.
1: On Fraser's shift from immigration to the housing file, I saw someone characterize it as moving from being the minister for housing demand to the minister of housing supply. As you say, there's something of a symmetry there. He closed the door yesterday to any changes to immigration policy in the context of housing affordability, which, as you say, removes one of the clear levers the federal government has on the supply-demand equation. And so you're right. In the absence of that, the range of tools available to the government are, are somewhat limited. There's been some discussion about using federal transfers to provinces and municipalities as carrots or sticks to try to galvanize the type of land use reform that we need to make it easier to build. Mike Moffat, a University of Ottawa professor, had an interesting Globe and Mail op-ed this week about some other things the federal government might do to try to boost productivity in housing construction, including but not limited to building homes off site as a means to try to increase productivity in a sector which is actually quite unproductive, even in the Canadian context, relative to some other parts of the economy. So there are, as you say, there are some steps the government can take, but the the one that no federal politician seems prepared to talk about, and it relates to some of the points he made earlier about the economy of housing is the capital gains exemption on primary residents. It is a significant federal outlay, Amanda. I haven't looked at the numbers in recent years, but we're talking billions of dollars. And there are academics and others who at different times make the case for some kind of reform to change the incentives around, as you say, the, the kind of growing financialization of housing. But there's no reason to think that that's on the table. Instead, what we're likely to see is the kind of tinkering on the margins that you mentioned. In that vein, I want to go back, though, to something we were talking about earlier, which is the the kind of challenge of longevity itself and a growing sense that the government looks somewhat old and and tired. And I should clarify that this is by no means a a partisan observation that the same perception grew around the Harper government as it uh, approached the 2015 election. If you were advising the Trudeau government, what are some policy areas where they might make some big bets in terms of reinvigorating its agenda?
2: So I, I mean that I'm not gonna stray into your arena because that's it's too far beyond my uh, my my capability. I, I will acknowledge and agree with you that uh Canadian voters have a tendency to vote people out rather than voting people in. Um, and so um incumbency can work against you. Um and it this has been a it's been a long run for um for the the face of this government, not all of these ministers, of course. Uh, what I would say is if I, if I were asked for advice and, cl- and I clumsily gave it, um, I, you know what I long for, Sean, is a, a little bit more fortitude on the part of, uh, individual ministers and the government as a whole to actually give Canadians, um, the kind of the, the credibility that we will, we can understand hard things. And, and by that, I mean, and I, I, I guess I'll just point to, you, and I don't have great expertise in this. And I don't want to dig too deep into it, but, um with Lametti out at uh, at justice, I must say my heart sank a little bit, and that's not to say the incoming minister doesn't look amazing. he does his credentials look super sound uh, but it was, was Lametti shuffled because there were a couple of hot button issues um it, and you could actually say the same of mendocino that uh, that may have highlighted internal processes problems right when ministers don't either hear about things or in a way that they are not able to absorb it there's obviously a systems issue there that we should really look at and that's important i mean anybody could stand up and say wow you should have known about that and let's not point fingers about where who was told what and when either on public security or um, or on an issue of justice let's be clear about that our systems are working and we tend to do this kind of duck and cover and um you know soundbite response i just wish we were more adult about these things and we could stand up and say look this happened. We own it. Here's how we're fixing it. Um, let's just understand, everybody, that this is what went down instead of letting the kind of partisan drag you down and uh, you dodge and weave and deny. I, I guess I, I just wish there's more maturity about all of the issues. You do get that from some ministers. I think we've had that from Christian Freeland on the issues um, and, and what the government's doing about them. Uh, so I would say just ho- holding ground a little bit, I think will gain you credibility with people that are just wondering what, you know, What's really happening, and who knows what's going on in Ottawa these days?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. This government came to office in 2015 with a pretty bold, ambitious agenda. It exuded energy and confidence and youthfulness, even. And that has come to dissipate a bit. And, and as I said earlier, that there's something natural to that that is not unique to this government. But I think if it's going to have a chance in the next election, it's going to need to try to find a way to breathe that energy back into its agenda. Some different, you know, you, you mentioned issues around accountability, transparency. I like the idea of a kind of adult conversation about the opportunities and challenges facing the country. I'm struck that we are approaching a major anniversary of the McDonald Royal Commission from the mid 1980s, which really set Canada on a different path when it came to economic policy. Its importance wasn't just merely its policy recommendations is important as they were, but it's that it, it set out a kind of bold and aspirational vision for the country's economy and society and its democracy. And it seems to me that's a piece of the puzzle that's missing right now. And I'm not proposing a royal commission between now and, and the next election, but finding inspiration from the coming anniversary of the McDonald commission seems to me something that could start to put some Coherence around the various disparate things that the government is doing. I was just, um, I was just on a recording a podcast this week, Amanda. And when you think about it, the government has an audacious agenda around essentially bringing an end to the internal combustion engine from supporting the production of electric vehicles to supporting the purchase of electric vehicles to the underlying minerals involved, the public infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it hasn't found a kind of charismatic way to connect the dots between these various policies and their importance for the country's economy and the environment. So I think, as you say, there's a lot to be done around just being straight with Canadians and direct and not succumbing to the tendency towards talking points which are endemic in politics, but they seem to be even more common as a government gets a bit longer in the tooth. You mentioned earlier, Amanda, pandemic benefits. And I, I want to shift the conversation now, if that's okay, to new calls from the Chamber of Commerce to extend the repayment period, which is set to expire at the end of the year on business loans provided under the Canadian Emergency Business Account Program during the pandemic. The program paid out $49 billion to roughly 900,000 businesses. Some of that money, as you know, was available in forgivable loans, but the rest is expected to be paid back. Presently, about 21% of businesses have fully repaid their loans. What do you make of the request for an extension? Is it a good idea or a bad idea? And and do you think the government will ultimately do it?
2: So uh, uh, this actually is is a pretty good through line to um, a government that may have to deliver a hard message. Um, And I hope they do on this one. I hope that this is one where we can be adult about this. Um, And let me say that this, this is by no way to be unsympathetic to entrepreneurs, small business people that start businesses. It is the, without question, the lifeblood of this economy. And when we have productivity gains, that's where they lie, right? It's a people that start something out of nothing and they grow things. Uh, the argument from the Chamber of Commerce is that uh, one in five of, of the businesses with these loans will go under if they don't get yet another extension. There's already been an, an extension, by the way, and let me just hit pause for one quick second and note that these loans are, yes, if repaid by this, the end of this year, a big chunk of them is fully forgivable. Um, and the other chunk is interest rate. So this is kind of like a, you know, never, neverland sort of loan. After December, uh, the forgivable part goes away. Your interest rate is, is I think it's 5%. It's, it just turns into a regular pretty good loan on today's rates. Um, so it's not as though anything terrible happens. It's just reality, uh, a pretty nice reality comes back. So let's just jump back to this one in five won't survive. If I told you to guess how many businesses a year go out of business uh, in Canada, what, I don't know what number you would land at if I threw that at you, but I'll save you from trying to guess, Sean, and tell you it's one in five. 20% of businesses um, go out of business every year. And by the way, 50% go out of business in five years and 70% don't make it to 10 years. So that there is business rollover isn't just a sad reality for the folks involved. It is, again, not diminishing that part, but I will say for a healthy functioning economy, it is how the organism works. It, 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 they grow, some, some shoots are green and live and, and grow and other ones die off. And that's uh, important because the ones that die off aren't supposed to be businesses, for whatever reason. There's a variety of reasons. Uh, so what we saw through pandemic was, of course, a huge drop in insolvencies, personal and corporate, um, because people were pre- pre- protected from the natural forces of the economy. Well, there we we need to bring them back, and that's not again to diminish the fact that for some businesses we're not back to normal. We have seen, of course, lags in returns to revenue um, streams, just sheer. Uh, markets for things in certain spaces like hospitality. Um, th- that's that's a reality. Restaurants aren't back to where they were in 2019. But you got to adapt. You know, how long do we say yesterday will be tomorrow? It's you know, tomorrow's different. It always was going to be. And so that's it's a hard line I take. I hope the government is as straightforward with Canadians as they need to be. And they say, look, we we get it. It's hard. But this is what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, a brilliant analysis, Amanda. I wasn't familiar with some of those data points. That's really compelling. And as you say, you know, it's a adult message, but the idea of creative destruction has a creative part and a destructive part, and they, they work together. And if they don't, if public policy in effect breaks the relationship between creation and destruction, it can produce uh, distortions through, throughout the economy and You know, the case for government stepping in and and backstopping businesses during the pandemic made a great deal of sense because, of course, the pressures they were facing weren't the functioning of the market. They were the result of government policy. But at some point, as you say, we need to get back to letting markets do what markets do, which is to reward good ideas and to punish bad ones or maybe bad, or badly executed ones, maybe a better way to put it. And in that sense...
2: Which, by the way, often frees up those entrepreneurs to go on and do the thing that will be a hit. You know, we're and we should also, side note, uh, Canada is full of what we call zombie businesses. And here I'm not talking about startups, mom and pop shops. We're talking about big companies. Um, and, and we've probably seen the data that you can slice and dice this and some sectors of our economy uh, sort of... Uh, Skew the data a little bit, but regardless of how you look at it, we have way too many companies that survive past their uh, their best their 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 best buy date. Like they're, they're, we just shouldn't. And now, is there government policy that could solve that? Maybe I don't know what that would look like, but if I were certainly if I were inside finance, I'd be looking at that to How do you make sure we don't have? You know, 500 employee companies that shouldn't be in existence, because that's also, of course, uh, affecting our our whole economy, our productivity, our innovation rates, um, and of course, the new jobs that we all are going to require in the future.
1: Yeah, particularly in a world of tight labor markets, we need to be eking out as much productivity of of our workers as possible. And that means moving at different times from low-performing firms to to high-performing ones. But let's wrap up with a bit of speculation about whether the government will take your adult advice. We started this conversation in a context of pretty poor polling for the government, economic data, which similarly cast some negative light on the on the government's performance? Do you think it's in a position to kind of hold the line on these demands?
2: You know, I wish I could say they because the government's been, been silent, and because it's already extended once, I wish I could say that's evidence that they will hold the line on this. Um, but to your point, there, there, are so many things that suggest the cave. Um, and one of them, of course, is that uh, money is funny money everywhere these days, the government um, writes checks without kind of Worrying too much, and the and the dollars involved here just aren't, aren't big in the context of where we sit uh, in terms of our spending and our deficits. So uh, it would be an easy. I just, gosh, I hope they don't um, is what I would say. But I, if I, if I, you know, really had to, if something important was riding on this, and I had to bet, I'd say yes, they'll extend.
1: Well, we'll we'll keep following this story. I want to thank you for joining me, Amanda, and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks.
2: Great to talk.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favourite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.